0: Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. As for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Or as Seahawks in the midst of Broncos. However you want to read that would be okay. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near." I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Well, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Then he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And Father, we rejoice in this, that regardless of the colors we wear today... Regardless of, Lord, the differences and distinctions in this world, regardless of how we as followers of Jesus come from different countries and different civilizations and we have different citizenship here on earth, we rejoice in the fact that we are recorded as citizens of yours in the heavenly kingdom. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ unites us as your children, Father. We rejoice in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that promises us life everlasting. We rejoice, Father, in a message that is not archaic, but a message that is more relevant today than it's ever been. And we rejoice in this message asking, Father, that You would fill us with the same joy of the 70 as we go and proclaim the kingdom. Holy Spirit, give us some insight today, we pray. By Your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they arrived at the Prudential Center in Newark on Tuesday, unloading from transport buses onto uh, platform loading bay number 5, and they were herded to an indoor hockey arena, ice removed, green grass carpet carpet installed, and uh, 7,100 fans bought tickets for this event. Now, you may be aware of this. It happens every year. It's a requirement of the NFL requiring the players to go to Media Day to make themselves available to the press to discuss their brilliance and how they win these games. Well, I throw the football and the guy goes into the end zone and we win. Where are the sandwiches? I mean, you know, it's like... And we're so fascinated by this. 7,100 fans, tickets were 28.50 a pop, to see the well-known and not so well-known players. 2,100 reporters were out on the field milling about, talking to the different players. The elite among the 122 players from the Broncos and from the Seahawks, woohoo, were there. <laughs> 17 from each team got the platform treatment. They got actually to sit up on the podium. And among these, an even smaller group, the ultra elite. You know, the Shermans, the Wilsons, the Mannings, they were projected onto six massive TV screens, 12 feet wide by 16 feet high, for the fans to watch and listen in and be impressed. Super Bowl 48. Two teams, one game, one winner. Seattle sent the Seahawks to New Jersey for the win, right? Denver sent the Broncos to New Jersey for the win. The outcome remains to be seen. Odds are in Seattle's favor. Uh, By a slim margin, but they are at this point. I I don't know what's going to happen. Best defense in the NFL versus the best offense and all that. You're probably up on these things, and if not, I'm just giving you the information. But there's a better win that we can count on. And you know this. And it's the wind that gives us the ability to walk day to day in faith and in trust and rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. The Father sent Jesus for the win. And Jesus secured the wind in a way that was completely unimaginable by the enemy. He lost. And by losing, He won. He gave up His life. And by giving up to the other side, so to speak, it looked that way anyway for the disciples. Three days of despair... It's over. We're the losers. Darker than a Seahawks winter if we lose this game. (laughs) And Jesus secured the win for all eternity. But it's interesting how He did it. Not only the crucifixion, but even prior to that. He did the unexpected. He sent out the twelve to train for the win. Luke chapter 9. Then he turns around and he sends out the 70, his growing franchise. He sends out, again, for the training for the win. And in this, the Lord gives us a great pattern, a game plan. The playbook, if you will. For disciples, for followers of Jesus Christ. And how we live our lives, and how we, each one of us, function as evangelists in this world. For for that is our calling. It's not just the calling of the evangelist, it is the calling of every single follower of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples in this world. Jesus, in sending out the 70, I think, gave us a great prescription for this, how to do it. And I'd like to walk that through with you this morning. We're going to go back to chapter 9 on Wednesday night, but we're going to sit in chapter 10 and see what the Lord did with the 70. Verse 1, After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of Him to every city and place where He Himself was going to come. He sends them out. Why 70? It's an interesting number. Now, you might just say, well, it's obvious, Rick, because He had 70 disciples at the time. Send them out. I think there's more to it than that. Sending the 12, that's a little more obvious. 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel... Matthew chapter 10 tells us these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10 verses 5 and 6. It's the first commission where Jesus commissions the 12, go to Israel. He came first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, right? So he sends the twelve out, go only to my people. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Don't take the message of the kingdom to the Gentiles. Don't even talk to the Gentiles. I came first for the Jew. Yeah, first crack at this. And so he sends out the twelve. Twelve men. Twelve tribes. Not the twelfth man. Twelve men. (laughs) To the twelve tribes, proclaiming the kingdom, the coming promised kingdom for the Jew. But now, and Luke counters this, chapter 9, the 12 cent, chapter 10, the 70 cent, suddenly now we see a different impact. The 70 are sent out with the same exact message, to preach the kingdom and to heal. They're sent in the same way, but they're a different group of people, and I believe express a different thought here. If you think back, why 70? If you go back to Genesis chapter 10, and we won't do it this morning, but just telling you where you can go to look at this, you get the story of the table of nations. The nations that grew out of the the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, are are described, they're delineated there, and what you see if you read Genesis chapter 10, are 70 nations. Seventy people who come out of the sons of Noah. Seventy groups. All, by the way, at that time speaking a unified language. For we see in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel debacle. We see all of them gathered together. All of the men of the earth, men and women gathered together and they decide in that one language, talking together, working together to build this Tower of Babel, this tower that would be a monument to humanity. No way to say, look how great we are. We're going to build right up to the heavens. And so they began that building and the Lord confused their language. He scattered the nations across the face of the earth. And that's part of the reason the old rabbis have long taught that at Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments and His voice thundered from the mountain, it thundered in 70 languages. You can read that in in the uh, Talmud. 70 languages were heard. And what the rabbis teach is that while Moses gave the law to Israel, the Ten Commandments thundered for all people. The Ten Commandments are sent out to all mankind as, as commands for the mass of humanity, for everyone to hear in every language. They called the multilingual voice there at Mount Sinai, the rabbis called this voice the voice of many waters. Sound familiar? Ezekiel chapter 43 verse 1 tells us that he led me to the gate Ezekiel speaking and the gate facing toward the east behold the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east as Jesus will come and his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And of course John records for us in Revelation 1:15 that his voice was like the sound of many waters. But there's more to this. Israel has a celebration. A celebration that is in part recognizing, at least today, they recognize the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It's called Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or in the Greek, Pentecost. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out, and everybody there heard the preaching of the Word, the Gospel of the Kingdom, in their own language. The languages of everyone represented. How many were there? We don't know that. But it's interesting, Luke is the one who told us about the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Luke the Gentile is the only gospel writer who talks to us about the sending of the 70. He calls attention to the fact that Jesus sent out the 70 with the same kingdom message as the 12. And I would submit to you that he sent out the 70 because now the gospel is beginning to go out to the Gentiles. Because now there's a Gentile focus. And so we can glean from this, I believe, a message that is for the whole world and for us as followers of Jesus. How do we go to the 70? How do we go to the world? I think we have a picture of our sending, our commission, our game plan. And verse 2 going on says, He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. So the first thing you do if you are sent is pray from the field. Pray from the field, not from the stands. Pray from the field. He calls the 12th man out of the stands, down to the field to pray there. What I'm saying is prayer is not a spectator sport. Isn't it curious that He says, the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. Pray, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. And then Jesus says, go. Well, Jesus, do You want us to stay and pray or do You want us to go and pray? Go and pray. Just because you go doesn't mean you don't pray. And just because you pray doesn't mean you don't go. And I find it interesting that prayer is by the players on the field, not by the spectators in the stand. He tells us to go and he tells us to pray because effective prayer rises from the field out of the mouths of those who harvest. We don't have the option of sitting back as believers and going, oh, I'm praying that the Lord would send out harvesters. Boy, I hope he does. I mean, my schedule obviously is too busy, but I pray that He will send someone. Now you are called to go. And as you go, to pray that the Lord will send more and bring more. And as a matter of fact, as we see harvest happening around us, those who are harvested for salvation, those who receive the gospel of His grace, join us in the harvesting and become more harvesters. But we're called to pray. We see that effective prayer in fact Luke points it out throughout the book of Acts Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith Acts chapter 12 verse 24 tells us the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Acts chapter 13 verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Acts chapter 19 verse 20, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I like that. Why? Because the first century church understood that they were not to be spectators. They were players. They were harvesters. They were praying from the field. And it started out that way. Acts 2.42 They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I guarantee they weren't praying for more chips. (laughs) Verse 3. Go, he says, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs in the midst of wolves. That's a little disconcerting, Lord. Jesus said right up front, this ain't going to be easy. You're going to be under attack. You are going to need to pray on the field because you're going to be pray in the field. P-R-E-Y. You will be prey in the field. You're going to be a target. People will pray on you. John 15, 18, however, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So you're going to be pray. So you might as well pray. It kind of works both ways, see. It's going to be tough. You're called to go. You're called to pray. It's going to be a difficulty. But verse 4, he goes on. He says, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. And I'm thinking, okay, hang on a second, Lord. You tell us that we've got to be in prayer. You tell us that we're going to be sheep among wolves. We've got to gear up. We need the pads, man. We need the helmets. We need some gear. And yes, the Lord tells us through the Apostle Paul, He tells us what our defensive armaments look like. But it's nothing like what we would expect. And you can read about that in Ephesians chapter 6. But the gear that Jesus sends the 70 out with is fascinating. It's nothing. Don't take a money belt. Take no shoes. And greet no one. This is a very strange sending. And I think what we can see out of this are a few things. Number three, if you're listing this, pray, pray. And number three, (laughs) prepare to give, not to receive. Prepare to give, not to receive. Take no money belt or bag. It isn't the work of a mercenary to which we're being called. We're not being called to get something out of this. We're called to go and to give. To give ourselves, to give our lives, to give our hearts, not expecting a return. Prepare to give, not to receive. Take no money belt. Take no bag. The word bag there, by the way, is a, a leather bag. It's a beggar's bag. So the bottom line is he's saying, don't go begging. Don't go hoping to make a buck off of the gospel. That's what Judas did. Take no money belt or bag. He says, take no shoes. And the implication here is that they don't have to go barefoot, it's that you take no extra shoes. One pair of Tevas is fine. Okay? Don't take extra. What's the deal with that? No extra shoes, Lord. Why why does that matter? It was the Lord who said in Deuteronomy 29, verse 5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. What's the idea? God will take care of you. God will provide. Focus on the message, not on your feet. Or proclaim the gospel, number four, not your bunions. We're getting deeply spiritual here, so hang with me. (laughs) Proclaim the Gospel. Get your eyes on the message and off of your feet. Now, Isaiah 52, verse 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. But the feet are not the point. The feet are not the idea. They are not... The focus. What are you saying? I think far too many Christians spend far too much time worried about our shoes. Concerned with our personal walk. Looking at how we're doing. Lord, what are my stats this week? How am I as a believer this week? How have I improved my game? How's my running, Lord? How am I doing, Lord? And I think Jesus would say to you and to me, forget about that. Stop focusing on your feet. Stop thinking so much about your personal walk. And you know what? If we as followers of Jesus would focus on His message and on the lost of this world and not on ourselves, I think we'd get a lot more done. But we spend an awful lot of time considering our own righteousness. Wallowing in our own spirituality and hoping to be made better. You want to know how you're made better? How you're sanctified? You take the message and you go. You play to win. You play to win. That's number five. Play to win. Play to win. Forget the shoes. Forget the walk. Remember the message. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. It's not about me. It's not about how I'm doing. It's about how the message is getting out. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And not once does He say, Love your shoes. You keep your eyes on the win. You play to win. And he also says, greet no one. Now that would seem a little odd. I mean, isn't that a little rude? Someone comes up to you and says, hey, aren't you from the British Christian Fellowship? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not allowed to greet you. God loves you. you know, how does that work? Greet no one. The Middle Eastern greeting, Middle Eastern culture is far more than a head nod and a what's up, you know. In Middle Eastern culture, you can get caught up in a greeting all day long. You can get caught up in the tent, invited in for a meal, for a cup of coffee, thick black coffee. You could be invited in to spend hours talking about where you've come from and where you're going and and what your business is in a certain place. And Jesus says, don't get caught up with that. You are still playing to win. Middle Eastern people can tend to be hyper hospitable and Jesus says don't wander into a town and spend all your time in greetings Paul put it this way 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24 do you not know that those who run in a race all run but only one receives the prize run in a way that you may win Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. A, a ring, if you will. A Super Bowl ring. You know, one ring to rule them all. That's what they're all playing for today. He says, They do it to receive something that's going to perish, but we and imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way so as not without aim. I, I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body, Paul writes, and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Greet no one, Jesus says. What's the point? Play to win. Stay on point. Remain focused. Keep your head in the game. Remember why you were sent. And if I were to translate that into our present Christian culture, I would say remember you are not sent to win arguments. You are sent to win souls. Remember that you are not sent to preach the Bridge Christian Fellowship. You are sent to preach the Kingdom. Remember you are not sent to present yourself as some upstanding citizen. You are sent to present Christ Jesus as the Savior of the world. Keep your head in the game. Stay on point. Jesus says, greet no one. Verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace, shalom to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. This is important. Number six, peace out. Peace out. You give peace out. Now listen. If it is received, great. If it's not, no worries. Because you cannot lose the peace of Christ. As a follower of Jesus Christ... You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to lose. When you present the message, if it's received and received in peace, wonderful. If it's rejected, it's not your fault. You haven't lost your peace. You haven't lost the game. Remember, the game's already won. Your peace remains with you. Why is that? Because Jesus remains with you. And He said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you? Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And I read that and it was just so reminded, my peace, my well-being does not come from the recipients of the message, either good or bad. My peace comes from Jesus. That's where I find my rest. But in verse 7, he says, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Find a place in a town. Settle in. Stay there. Preach the message. Stay on point. Don't worry about your shoes. Keep on message. Pray constantly. You're going to be under attack. He's saying all of these things. He says, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And the idea here is this. When the gospel of peace is peacefully received... The response will not be contentious, it will be generous. You, know, you always know when someone's receiving the gospel, when someone's heart is open to the gospel, because it's not going to be a contentious, it's not a battle. You don't fight someone into the kingdom. You know, you don't battle someone in an argument, and if you win the argument, at the end of the day, I won, you have to be saved. <laughs> it doesn't work. You win the argument, you lose the soul. You fight for it, you lose what Jesus says is offer the gospel of peace. And if what you see is contentious, if someone's rebellious against it, if they're pushing back, back away. If they receive it peacefully, they will give a generous response. And number seven, pick up on generosity. Pick up on generosity. Let Him provide for you. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. On the one hand, you say, don't take a money belt. And now you're saying we should benefit from this? The point is this God is the source of our provision. And we are not to be mercenaries, but God will provide in ways that we cannot even imagine. We're messengers of the gospel. And where the gospel is received, there is provision. And where it is rejected, our peace comes back to us. And it's cool, we're still going to be provided for, taken care of. The point is the source of the provision. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. You keep your eyes on the kingdom. You seek the kingdom. That's the point. And as far as your provision goes, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.7, Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock. 1 Corinthians 9.11, he says, If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? He says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the Gospel to get their living from the Gospel. And so you can go and trust that the Lord will provide And I am convinced the more our focus is on the gospel, the less we're worried about our provision, and the more the Lord is going to take care of that. That's how we are to go. Here's how we are to be. This is what they were to do. Verse 9. Heal those in it who are sick. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Number 8 present the kingdom with unexpected power. And I want you to get this. Jesus did the same thing with the twelve. He sent them out to preach and to heal, to heal and to preach, to cast out demons, to call out and to cast out. He sent them with a great power and He sent them with an awesome message. The power, the message were simultaneous. The power and the message. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Note that. There are so many believers who say, I really don't talk a lot about my faith because I just don't know enough. Do you know Jesus Christ and Him crucified? That's the message. Did Jesus save you? That's the message. Yeah, but I can't back it up with all kinds of Scripture. You give the message. Let the Holy Spirit worry about backing it up with all kinds of Scripture. And if you want them to get all kinds of Scripture, bring them here. We'll give it to them. (laughs) But you take Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is the most simple message and the most powerful message ever proclaimed on the face of the earth. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul. I didn't have the words. He says, My message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now this is where it gets tricky. And this is where we have a great divide in the church between those who would seek the power miracles and those who would completely deny miracles of any kind. All under the same roof of Christianity. Why that divide? The power can be problematic. There are people who look at the miracles, and the miraculous, and the supernatural, and, it, and it, it makes them tremble, makes them uncomfortable. What if it gets out of control? There are those engaged in power, miracles, and the, and the supernatural, and, and others looking at them saying, <laughs> they, just, they just go overboard. It's, it's too much. Present the kingdom with unexpected power. Jesus said, I want you to go and heal the sick and proclaim the Gospel. Heal the sick and proclaim the Gospel. People, as we talked about last week, like John the Baptist, they expected the Kingdom to come in power and might and judgment and overthrow. The power of the Kingdom. When it's here, we're going to know because it's just going to wipe out Rome. And Jesus came healing. And Jesus came in mercy and compassion touching lepers causing the lame to stand up and leap for joy giving sight to the blind and and hearing to the deaf it was unexpected power the Jews looking for the power of overthrow and Jesus came with the power of love and the power of grace That was the unexpected power of Jesus. The mercy, compassion, grace, forgiveness of God. And so when we go with the message of the kingdom, that's the power that we take. The power of mercy. The power of grace. The power of forgiveness. What about those supernatural things, Rick? Yeah, those too. But I've told you before, the gifts of the Spirit as, as listed by Paul and as talked about in Scripture are not for a thrill. The gifts of the Spirit are for mercy and compassion and a powerful witness that is unexpected in this world. This world expects the big power scene. This world wants to see something impressive. We're not called to go be impressive. We're called to go with a message of salvation and to present that message With the power of God, the unexpected power of healing and grace and compassion. What if I get the play wrong? If I go right when I'm supposed to go left? What if I don't do the button hook at the right time? What if I mess it up? Worse, what if I get it right and people reject me or they just don't receive the truth? Now this is where it gets a little difficult. Because this is something that in our calling to go, to pray, to proclaim the gospel, to do all these things that we've talked about, there's an aspect of taking the message of the kingdom that a lot of Christians either don't do at all or are very uncomfortable with. Number nine, if you're taking notes, pronounce judgment. Pronounce judgment. Now you gotta listen carefully because I don't want to send idiot- anyone out of here turning into an idiot holding up signs, you know, on the street. No. <laughs> I don't have anyone in mind, but I'm saying. <laughs> Pronounce judgment. Pay attention to what Jesus says, verse 10. Whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Some of your versions say, in protest against you. And that's the implication. We wipe these off against you. I say to you, well, he says, and yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. They were to say this. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And you all know what happened to Sodom. Verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Zidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, Jesus says. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Pronounced judgment. And Jesus calls out three cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These were what I've called before the ministry triangle of Jesus. Three small seaside villages. Beautiful little villages there on the shores of the Galilee where the people gathered and lived. And those three villages would become a Bermuda Triangle of lost souls. These were the places. More miracles would occur in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum than anywhere else in Jesus' entire ministry. Those three villages had front row seats to the game. They saw everything taking place before their very eyes. They saw the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the lame walking. They saw demons cast out. They saw the dead raised. And these three cities are compared by Jesus now to Sodom, Nuf said, and to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was a coastal Phoenician city, 35 miles north of the Galilee. Sidon was another 30 miles north of Tyre. Gentile cities. And Joel chapter 3, verse 4 says of these two cities. What are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense, says the Lord? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. God judged Tyre and Sidon, and in 345 BC, Antiochus III conquered Sidon, wiped him out. In 332 BC, Tyre was enslaved by Alexander the Great. Wiped out. By Jesus' day, Tyre and Zidon existed. There were people who lived there, but they were gutted of their power of the past. They were toast. They were history. By all accounts, think about this. Jesus goes to the Galilee to begin His ministry, to spend the primary part of three years in these three cities, back and forth from one to the next to the next, preaching the Gospel, teaching the truth, healing people right and left, raising the dead, and you would think that because of that, those three cities should be thriving metropolises today. And they're in beautiful locations. Mild climate, lakefront property. They're in a beautiful place in Israel. Vast resources, the only freshwater lake in the entire region. Not to mention the presence of Messiah Himself, but today you can visit all three places. They are archaeological ruins. And it's interesting. I love Capernaum. It's one of my favorite places to go when we go to Israel. I love to stand on the beach there in front of Capernaum. I love to walk up into the synagogue and through the ruins and the streets. But when you're in Capernaum, you realize that everything Jesus said has come true. No one lives there. It's rocks. It's rocks. It sticks. It's ruins. Why? Because Capernaum rejected the message. Chorazin is the same way. Bethsaida, is the same way. Because they rejected the message of Jesus Christ. Perfect resort locations that now sit in the dust of history. Because they rejected the gospel that was sent to them. But here's the thing they had fair warning. Every one of these. I mean, talk about opportunity to believe in Jesus. Jesus Himself comes to your house, heals your family, talks to you directly about the Gospel, and is rejected. And so Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum would go down. And so we go. We pronounce the Gospel of peace. We heal hearts and bodies with compassion and mercy and prayer. We preach the gospel of the kingdom. If it's accepted, praise the Lord. If it's accepted, more harvesters for the harvest. Hallelujah, that's our goal, that's our hope. But if it's rejected, Jesus says, go back to verse 11, shake the dust off your feet. And this is not just about letting it go, man. Oh, that's that's part of it, sure. But He says, even he, He tells him, Verse 10, If you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, this is now part of the message, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off against you, yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. In case anyone misses the symbolism of them kicking the dust off of their feet, they were to speak it out. We want to make sure you all know what we're doing right now. We're wiping the dust off our feet against you. And you need to understand, today the kingdom came near. And you rejected it. Pronounce judgment. I just need you to know, before I go, that the kingdom of God has come near to you this day. And you chose not to receive it. And you might say, yeah, that still sounds like sticking your tongue out at someone. You don't want the gospel? (laughs) You know? But that's not the case. Understand this. The pronouncement of judgment. This is a last note of compassion. When you are preaching the gospel, and you take the gospel, and you offer it in grace and love and compassion, and it's rejected, you don't walk away and lick your wounds and go, oh man, I'm just no good at this. I just can't get people to hear me on this. I wish I was better. wish I could talk like other people. No, that's not what you do. You pronounce the Gospel, and then when it's rejected, you pronounce the judgment. And that's what we don't do. That's part of the reason why the American church is not in good shape today. Because we don't tell the whole truth. We don't tell the whole message. Salvation in Jesus, absolutely. And damnation if you reject it. But we don't want to cover that. We'll talk about salvation, but not damnation. We'll talk about heaven, but we reject hell. And I'm, not ta- I'm talking about the collective we. Christians writing books rejecting even the existence of hell. And you're cutting off the message. Because the message of grace always gives fair warning. The message of grace and love always says to someone, I love you too much, not to let you know what your rejection means. And if you're going to reject this, Please understand, this will be your only chance ever to hear of the grace of Jesus. You might die tonight, and that's it. And there's no hope. Well, I don't like the message of hell. Neither do I. But as I've shared with you before, Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. Because He didn't want anyone to end up there. Pronounce God's judgment. It is the last note of compassion in the evangelist message. Peace first, judgment second. Is there anywhere in Scripture that gives us that picture? Aside from, you know, Jesus saying that, I get that, but is there something else that can kind of shore that up a little more? Romans chapter 2, verse 4. The Apostle Paul writing says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. There's the message of the Gospel. Forgiveness, salvation, peace. It all comes because Jesus provided it in God's great mercy and kindness. He has offered you salvation. That's the message of the Gospel. That's the part I like. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's both. The complete message is the message of salvation and the message of judgment should salvation be rejected. And fellow evangelists, that's the whole message that we are called to share with this world. And it is not sticking out your tongue. If someone rejects the gospel of peace, you shake the dust off your feet. So you don't carry the weight of that rejection yourself. You shake it off. But you understand that this judgment we're talking about is not your judgment. It's God's judgment. And I think it was just last week we were talking about the issue of judge not, that you not be judged. And how do you deal with that? I am not to judge arbitrarily. I'm not to look at, say, a Broncos fan and say, because you like orange, you're out of the picture, dude. That's arbitrary. But I am to offer to share openly and honestly the judgment of God, which is not arbitrary, which is absolute truth. Gospel of grace and the judgment that is the truth of God's coming wrath. And sometimes that's the only way to get through to someone. And perhaps that's something we've missed. For all the grace and compassion that's offered, sometimes the only way to crack the hard heart is to make it clear that you need some fire insurance. I don't want to do that whole hell thing, that whole fire insurance thing. Maybe that's the only thing that's going to turn someone's head around and, and get them to recognize they have a need for a Savior. Mourning someone because you love them is not a bad thing. And so we pronounce judgment. Well, Jesus sent out the 70. What happened? Verse 17 says, The 70 returned with joy. That should define a church fellowship right there. Joy. Not grumpiness. I think we've been over this a few times over the years. We are not to come, gather together, open up our hearts to sing and go, Praise the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And he said to them, and I can see him smiling from ear to ear, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What's he talking about? There are four falls, four fumbles, you could say, of Satan in the Bible. Four losses. The first one is from glory to profanity. That he was in a glorious place, Ezekiel 28, verses 14 through 16. A decorated, highly uh, honored cherub at the top of his game, leading worship in heaven until he sought to exalt himself above God. And so the first fall of Satan is from glory to profanity. That's where he's at right now. The second fall of Satan is from heaven to earth. And this is where people get confused. We say, well, wait a minute. I thought Satan fell to earth and that's why he's on earth now. And, and, and No, he still has access to heaven. You Bible students know this. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, we see Satan before God in heaven. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, we see Satan again in heaven accusing the priests Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 tells us of that time yet to come when the great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world and was thrown down to the earth his angels are thrown down with him and when that happens John tells us in Revelation 12 verse 12 the devil will come to earth his access to heaven fully revoked and he will be in a rage why will he be in a rage? Revelation 12:12 12, 12 says because he knows he has a short time He finally understands it's over. Conquered in the heavens, now he's left to try and rage in the earth. But he has fallen from glory to profanity, from heaven to earth, from earth to the pit. That's the third fall of Satan. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 3, talks about him being bound in that pit for a thousand years. And the final fall of Satan, he will fall into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 10. Biblical theology about heaven and hell and about Satan is very specific. It's only Greek culture that's messed up our thinking. It's only Greek culture that's given us the idea of, of, a, of a demon with you know points on his head and a pointy tail reigning in hell as the ruler of hell. That's not it. It's not the way it works. When Satan ends up in the lake of fire, he will be like anybody else in the lake of fire, burning for eternity. He will not be in charge. The fourth and final fall, game over for the devil. What's Jesus referring to when He says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning? He's referring to the proof of the first fall. The proof of the fall from glory to profanity. That is, the disciples here on earth, filled with power, filled with the gospel, are holding the line against a weakened enemy. You're holding the line. He did great things. You, think about this, these were human beings. Like you and like me. The 70 sent out were just people, yet they were casting demons out in the name of Jesus Christ. They were healing people who were diseased by sin, by Satan, by the fallenness of man. They were healing people in the power of Jesus Christ. They were doing remarkable things. And that could not happen if Satan wasn't weakened. If the strong man wasn't becoming bound by the presence of Jesus in this world. How much more are you, born-again, Spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ, positioned to stand against the enemy today? If the 70 could do it, how about you? How about me? Number ten, tenth and final note for this morning, take up your positional authority. You have, as a follower of Jesus, positional authority in this world. I love this passage, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Verse 15, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Satan is the conquered enemy. It would be like the Seahawks going into the stadium today, having already won the game. A conquered Broncos. Or vice versa, if you're a Broncos fan, we'll try and we'll give you props. You know. <laughs> the enemy's conquered. The enemy is weakened. The power of Jesus is with you. Is with me. It's not the power to cower. <laughs> you know, I don't live my life under assault. Yeah, I'm a sheep in the midst of wolves. Yeah, I know I'm a target. I know I'm prey. But guess what? I have the power of prayer to Jesus Christ. I have a power and authority that far surpasses the enemy's. Because of Jesus. I have positional authority. Take up your positions for the kingdom of Christ. Stand with the message of the kingdom. Verse 19. Behold, Jesus says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. So let's go get some snakes. (laughs) Right, Joe? Let's handle us some snakes in this barn. What do you say? That's not what he's talking about. He says, and I love this, verse 20, Nevertheless, I've given you a positional authority. Even these things can't hurt you. But, listen up, pay attention. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Amen. So I was reading about Media Day and about all the players out on the field and and all the hype and the hoopla and the fame and the celebrity and, and that's what our culture goes for, the worship of man. And I read a really interesting article that was talking about what took place on that day. Of course, the massive 12 by 16 screens we we talked about. You've got the Russell Wilsons, and you've got the Marshawn Lynches, and you've got the Richard Shermans. And who's that guy for uh, the Broncos? Oh, Peyton Manning. Right, Manning. Again, props, Manning. So what I didn't tell you And what we never talk about or hear talked about, especially on game day or media week running up to the Super Bowl, is all the necessary players who never make it onto the field. Among them, (laughs) herded like cattle. And that's how a lot of these players feel, by the way. They come into media day, they come into that massive hockey arena as they did on Tuesday, and they're walking through these these metal grates <laughs> herded like cows and no one's talking to them no one wants to know how they feel about the big game, no one cares because no one knows their names like D'Anthony Smith anyone here know who D'Anthony Smith is? wow not a single die hard Seahawks fan, gang he's a defensive tackle he played in two games this year nobody knows will he play in the Super Bowl? probably not How about Paul Kornick? Paul Kornick is a tackle for the Denver Broncos. He played in zero games this year uh, unless you include the practice games. He's on the practice squad. But here's the thing. When the rings are passed out to the winning team, everyone gets one everyone on the team. The Smiths, the Cornicks, they are necessary players. They're unknown, but they matter to the effort of the whole team. And Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Christian. we rejoice in that too much. We rejoice in those in the church who make a big splash, who do big, impressive things. We say, that's the guy, she's the girl. Wow, look at what they're doing, and I can't do that. And Jesus says that is not the place for you to rejoice. You rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. You rejoice that you're part of the win. Some for all of their efforts will never get to see another soul saved. I've lived my life as a Christian all my life. I've talked to people about Jesus. I've never led someone forward on a Sunday morning. I've never seen a friend of mine come for an altar call. I've never watched someone in my family get baptized who who I really poured into. I, I haven't seen all that. Am I on the outs with God? No. You are a necessary player. You are necessary to the kingdom effort. Some will never see another person physically healed by the power of God. Am I missing something? Am I not doing it right? Some will never feel like they do amazing things for the kingdom at all. But at the end of the day, we're all on the field. At the end of the day, really it's only the effort of Jesus that brings the win, not me, not you, not anybody else. So what do we do? We run in such a way as not without aim. We box not as beating the air we discipline our bodies, we make it a slave so that after we have preached to others, we ourselves will not be disqualified. Everyone gets a ring. Amen. Amen. And Father, we thank You for the encouragement of Your Word this morning. We thank You that You have called us out of the stands and onto the field. And whether we feel like we're players or not, whether our names are known or not, is completely beside the point. Father, we are here... To Your purpose, we are here for Your glory. And we pray, use us as You see fit. And thank You for calling us to Your team. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.